0: On December 21st, 1988, a Pan Am flight is doing a series of stops between Frankfurt and Detroit when it disintegrates, what caused this flight to never make it to its final destination.
1: Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
0: I'm Miranda. I'm
2: Christy, and I'm Galen. Hey, hey! This is our patron, Galen. Hello, you
1: f- and longtime friend. And yes, friend. <laughs> longer term friend than patron. <laughs> well,
3: I would hope so. You guys haven't been doing the podcast that long. No,
1: yeah, we we went to high school together, and yeah, it was great. Middle school no no school? i didn't I, okay i couldn't remember that part no
3: you went to i remember K-A all the high school, school stuff. yeah i did go to yeah, the little sense. tiny one i
1: remember all the high school stuff but sometimes it gets blurry after that i
3: get that i get that <laughs> and this Kalen is different than the other Kalen that we've had as a guest which caused some confusion today yes <laughs> oh yeah it was very funny when i was announced as a patron it was on the episode where the other Kalen was airing yes <laughs> it was a yes. very funny episode to listen to yes <laughs> that
1: was that was a fun one
3: uh
0: so we have a, a lot of new patrons
1: <laughs> yeah we do
0: So, thank you to Brett, Taylor, Alan, and Dallas. Yes,
2: thank you. Dallas, we just got the notification of you, like, 20 minutes ago. Yeah, so thanks. (laughs) And I can confirm, they all freaked out.
1: (laughs) Yes, thank you. Yes. Uh, Thank you to all our new patrons. You guys are great. And also, all the regular listeners. Thanks.
2: Also, thank you to our listener, Kit. We got to meet her and her boyfriend at... Near my dad's, actually, which is really unique. This all came up because she wanted signed ducks. We are still sending those out, unless you live in Australia or New Zealand.
1: Sorry.
0: (laughs) Or in any of the places that USPS decides they're going to be an absolute about. Pretty much. So.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, that that happened. That was a thing. It was actually fun. It was short, but it was fun. So, yeah, we were happy to do that. That was nice.
0: Also, sorry for the late newsletter this month. Still haven't sent it out yet. (laughs)
1: Also done.
0: I just haven't sent you. If we
1: haven't mentioned, because this is much in the future still, but uh, sorry that the listener episode is late, but we tried something new. So
0: we apologize. We
1: apologize. We
2: are also recording on a Saturday and we're recording on the 4th. So this is very in advance.
1: There's also some things about this episode that will be interesting. We'll mention that in a minute. Also, Merry Christmas.
2: Kay. Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Hanukkah.
0: Happy all of the other things. Happy Winter Solstice. Happy Yule. All of that. Yes.
2: At this time of year, we like to particularly thank every individual country that has listened to us. And this list hasn't grown as much as it did last year, but it's still longer. Yes. So, in order of listenership,
0: let's go. The United States. United Kingdom. United Kingdom. Australia, Canada, Germany, Sweden, Singapore, Norway, Ireland, Japan, Trinidad and Tobago, Switzerland, Finland, Iceland, Iceland, Austria, Denmark, Denmark, Poland, Latvia, New Zealand, South Africa, Belgium, Hong Kong, France, Brazil, Italy, Spain, Greenland, Mexico, Colombia, Bahrain, the Netherlands, the United Arab Emirates, Jersey, Barbados, Ivory Coast, Puerto Rico, Russia, Pakistan, South Korea, India, Thailand, Nigeria, Malaysia, Portugal, Ukraine, Costa Rica, Turkey, Cayman Islands, Syria, Gibraltar, Indonesia, Greece, Saudi Arabia, Taiwan, Chile, Ecuador, Vietnam, the Philippines, Nepal, Algeria, Egypt, Qatar, Djibouti, Ethiopia, Kuwait, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, Romania, Bahamas, Jamaica, Cambodia, Hungary, Hungary. Macau, Kenya, Guyana, Maldives, Botswana, Eswatini, Bulgaria, China, Sri Lanka, Slovenia, Antigua and Barbuda, Guam, Curaçao, Oman, the Kingdom of Jordan, Peru, Bangladesh, Israel, Togo, Dominica, Guinea, Macedonia, Argentina, Panama, Nicaragua, St. Martin, and Tajikistan. Tajikistan?
1: Tajikistan?
0: Tajikistan? Sorry we're trash if i butchered
2: also company. that's I'm new since me. i looked last yes
1: <laughs> yes so thanks that is thank a l- you everyone <laughs> that is a lot of countries these days
0: i don't <laughs> even know where most of those are
1: yeah that's fair
0: a lot of them are tiny little islands in the middle of nowhere uh, <laughs> yes
1: and no not, not not that many of those are but yeah, i'm
0: bad with geography that's okay it's that's okay I, I don't
1: expect many people to be geography nuts like me and you
0: yeah nick just looks at maps in his free time i like maps on brand okay <laughs> yes
1: it's my thing yeah well,
0: with all that being said i think also, that's all the wait
1: also thank you for actually introducing yourself normally
0: <laughs> yes it's like i listen to this ep- thing all the time yes brendan's still thousand <sighs> brendan's like yeah. when am i gonna get an intro i'm like you've literally been here for like 15 episodes can you just introduce yourself yeah. it's not that hard to say your own name either no I know. it's not called out anyway <laughs> <laughs> i think that's all the housekeeping for now yeah all right So what are we covering today, Nick?
1: Today, we are covering Pan Am Flight 103. This is a big one.
0: This is a
2: huge one. Thank you to our patron, Will, for recommending this. And this is airing on the 33rd anniversary.
1: It is the day of the 33rd anniversary. So, this is an anniversary crash. Because this happened on December 21st of 1988. And if you read the title of this episode, that might give it away.
2: It's also known as Lockerbie. It is also known as
1: Lockerbie. This was a Boeing 747-100 with a tail number November 739 Papa Alpha. This was also named Clipper Made of the Seas because that's what Pan Am did. They liked nautical things, but they flew planes, so.
3: Whatever. As you do. You can dream. Yep.
1: (laughs) So this was, this is kind of complicated, but this was a flight from Frankfurt to London Heathrow to JFK to Detroit. And we'll talk about this in a bit here. We're going to be talking about the leg from London Heathrow to JFK in New York. The captain for today's flight was James B. McQuarrie. He was 55 years old. He had 10,910 hours total, of which 4,107 hours were on the 747. The first officer was Raymond R. Wagner. He was 52 years old, so three years younger. He had 11,855 hours total, so almost a 1,000 hours more. And he had... 5,517 hours on the 747. So he also had almost a thousand, well, over a thousand more hours on the 747. But, first officer. The flight engineer was Jerry D. Everett. He was 46 years old. He had 8,086 hours total, of which 487 hours were on the 747. So, relatively experienced group of people, overall. Yeah. The 747 arrived from San Francisco and parked at Stand K-14, or Kilo 14, at Terminal 3 at London Heathrow. Now, Yes, what? it came from San Francisco.
0: What? Oh, never mind. You I know, I talked about this Why with you. are you saying what? Because yeah, I... I
2: don't deal with this part of the yeah, flight. Yeah, that's my job. <laughs> so
1: now the part where I clarify the Frankfurt part. A 727 arrived in from Frankfurt that was flying... As Pan Am Flight 103. It arrived in from Frankfurt as a 727. So all the people that were coming from Frankfurt came on the 727. But it
2: still was Flight 103. It was
1: still Flight 103. They bought the ticket all the way through to either New York or Detroit. And then they transferred at London to this 747. The 747 also took on a bunch more passengers that were boarding in london so many of the passengers on the 747 had transferred from the 727 and then others boarded as well as the bags were moved over from the 727 The 747 was on the ground for six hours from its arrival from san francisco before its departure for new york 243 passengers boarded the 747 in all along with three flight crew and 13 cabin crew so hefty amount of crew among the passengers of the 747 were 35 syracuse university students who were participating in the study abroad program for the university and were returning home for Christmas.
0: Christmas.
1: Christmas. The aircraft was pushed back at 6.04 p.m. They were cleared to taxi to runway 27R a short time later. They did so and were subsequently cleared for takeoff. The airplane took off at 6.25 p.m. Stop me or slow me down if you need clarification on anything at any point in time. The aircraft approached the Burnham VOR then turned to a heading of 350 degrees and flew below the Bovingdon holding point at 6,000 feet. So a holding point is just literally if you miss an approach or if you're told to hold, you usually go to that point near the airport and you wait. Fly in circles at a certain altitude specified on a chart. So they're flying below that specified altitude so that they're not in the way. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight to climb to 12,000 feet. A short time later, they were then cleared to climb to a cruising altitude of 31,000 feet. The aircraft climbed and leveled off at 31,000 feet northwest of the Pole Hill VOR at 6.56 p.m. So they managed to get to their cruising altitude. Seven minutes later, the Shanwick Oceanic Control gave the flight its clearance across the ocean. So they needed to have their exact routing across the ocean given to them by a control, and that's what this specific controller is meant to do. Give them their clearance across the ocean. Which and makes sense,
0: because, so. like, you can get lost over the ocean. Yeah. Because there's, no, to... there's no radar points well, out there.
1: <laughs> yeah, and there's a handful of airways that cross the Atlantic, and there are some of the busiest routes in the world. Because there's so many airplanes on those routes, they also need to try to sequence you onto the right one, so you're not going to interfere with anybody else. So they sequence you onto a specific route, knowing that you're going to fit into that space without interfering with any other aircraft on the same airway. Right. The controller finished giving the clearance, but then received no response from the flight. Things happen fast now. The secondary radar return of the flight had disappeared from the controller's radar screen during the clearance transmission. So while he was giving them the clearance, airplane popped off the radar. No more airplane. The air traffic controller did, however, see multiple primary radar returns. This is the pinging radar. This is not driven by the airplane's transponder. This is driven by literally a radar pinging off of objects out in the air.
3: Like the submarine. Yep,
1: exactly. So he did have a primary radar return on several items spreading out downwind for a long distance.
0: Oh, I forgot that this happens. Oh, that's horrible.
1: It was quickly evident that the large aircraft, or jumbo jet, had broken up in flight. The air traffic controller and witnesses saw two large portions of wreckage as they fell in the town of Lockerbie. Other large parts, including the flight deck and forward fuselage, were seen falling into the countryside just east of town. Residents of the town said that just after 7 p.m., they heard a noise like thunder, which then quickly became much louder very quickly to, quote, deafening proportions like the roar of a jet engine under power, end quote. Witnesses saw one of the large portions of wreckage described as a delta-shaped object, like an aircraft wing, land in the Sherwood part of town. The object was not on fire as it fell, but created an enormous fireball on impact.
0: You know, because it has the fuel? Yep. What? Yep. You mean fuel causes fire go boom, big boom?
1: Real yeah. big. That impact and fireball threw debris into the air. Some lighter parts were carried and landed miles away downwind. Large parts of the aircraft had fallen on houses, creating craters. All 243 passengers and 16 crew perished in the crash, as well as 11 people on the ground. Two people on the ground were also seriously injured, and three were minorly injured.
2: It's actually pretty miraculous that more people on the ground weren't hurt.
1: Yes, it really Especially since there is. was
0: flying pieces of burning wreckage.
1: We'll talk about just how fortunate that actually is in a bit. On to you.
0: This investigation
2: was performed by the Air Accidents Investigation Branch of the UK, a.k.a... D-A-A-I-B.
1: There yeah. you go. We've talked about them a lot lately. <laughs>
3: yes, we
2: have. With the assistance of the Dumfries and Galloway Constabulary and the United States Federal Bureau of <laughs> Investigation, or the FBI.
1: The FBI was the easy one. The other one was <laughs> <"What>? <laughs> a
2: lot. Big quite
1: words. the conglomeration of words. My brain had to put together that sentence slowly. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> I would like to point out, this. it's kind of comedic to me because mm-hmm. Scottish people really struggle saying burglary. Yes. And this... Institutions called the Constabulary. <laughs>
1: Constabulary. Constabulary.
2: I, I need TikToks of this. Anyway, that was about the only comedic part of this. I will get into later why criminal investigation authorities were involved. Both black boxes were recovered and sent
0: to the AAIB headquarters in Farnborough for a readout. That's actually pretty miraculous. I would not have thought that they were able to I find know. FDR it's and CVR. pretty
1: crazy that they did.
0: They were pretty useless, though. Oh, well.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately.
0: I mean, at least they found them.
2: <laughs> when the CVR was able to be read out, the investigators heard a loud noise on the CVR at 7.02 and 50 seconds, which is represented as point B on a map you'll see later on our website, and is also the same time that both black boxes stopped recording.
3: Oh, that's helpful. Because
2: power to the recorders was interrupted by a sudden event. And now it's back to Nick! Okay,
1: okay. we're gonna go back into the wreckage a little bit before we carry on here. The wings had impacted southern Lockerbie, creating a crater so large that it displaced an excess of 1,500 tons of material. Wow. The fireball set fire to many homes in the surrounding area. In fact, 21 homes were deemed beyond repair and were demolished, apart from the homes that already didn't exist after this crash. Many more homes, they said a number well beyond that, were damaged and required substantial repairs. Most of the town... Houses, actually. Lockerbie's not a very big place.
2: It's a market town.
1: Yes, it is a market town. It's small. The engines also landed in Lockerbie. Some lighter debris from the aircraft breakup were carried as far as 130 kilometers away from the breakup, or explosion, to the east coast of England by the strong winds. A computer database was compiled of about 1,200 significant pieces of wreckage, along with a brief description of each item and where it was found. This was used to map the wreckage and the two lines of debris. A datum line, a single line, like a center line or a mean line, was created of the direction of travel of the debris. So there's a single line that runs through the map, basically, with all the points of uh, wreckage that they found, and it basically gives you an idea of the direction the wreckage was traveling. Right. That That's said, crazy.
0: real quick, I should have asked this a while ago, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry if I wasn't paying attention. It's okay. High key possible. Lockerbie is in Scotland? Yes. yes. Lockerbie yeah. is in Scotland. I was going to say directions. Ireland, but I was like, we we're talking UK, so it's probably. I Scotland. also mentioned that Scottish have a hard time saying
2: burglary. Now I understand. Yes. Got it. They own, They I named their own institution something
0: that's hard to yes. say.
1: Sorry, Lockerbie's in Scotland.
0: Just so everyone's aware. Yes. If you did not know that already. Yeah, if that. you're bad at geography. Like yeah. me. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's okay. It was believed that the wings and center structure were intact upon impact when the crater was created. They were what created that impact. It was just the wings in the center of the fuselage. The crater was larger at the west end than the east, indicating that it impacted from west, headed east, moving a volume of 560 cubic meters of material. Another large portion of wreckage fell about 600 meters away from the wing crater, which fell into housing. The forward fuselage, including the flight deck, the forward cabin, and the forward landing gear, fell separately as a single large piece. It fell into a field four kilometers from Lockerbie and had fallen almost straight down. The portion fell flat on its left side in a slight nose-down attitude.
2: It's one of the most famous pictures.
1: It is one of the most famous pictures of Lockerbie.
2: That's the
0: front of the plane.
1: Yes, the very front of the plane. Okay, it fell flat on its side, and as a matter of fact, they said it almost completely crushed flat the left side of the.
0: Oh, it
3: did. Yeah, that's
2: oh the yeah. cockpit.
0: Well, that or half of it. Yeah, I was
2: gonna say so no. That's part the of whole the thing. It crushed the left side. I right. know. Right. So
3: that's part of it.
1: This honestly was. Now that we've we've already had the question about which one was like the hardest for you to work on, quite honestly, there's so much description behind this particular thing that it's made this one kind of hard. The flight controls in the cockpit were found as they would have been set for cruise flight, indicating that the flight crew made no effort to react to the rapid decompression and separation of the fuselage. We'll talk about why that is shortly. There was a large scuff mark on the right side of the fuselage that matched the intake of the number three engine. That means that the fuselage separated and struck... Itself. ...the engine.
3: Yeah, yeah that's not how that's supposed to work. No, and I no.
2: will get more into that.
1: Yep. The northern debris trail of the two debris trails was narrow and well-defined and was consistent with wind direction and speeds calculated for the higher altitudes in the area at the time of the breakup. So, in other words, they were able to figure out that... Where the debris ended up in these trails was consistent with the very high winds that they were experiencing up where the breakup took place. They said 115 knot winds. Ooh. So it carried some of the debris pretty far. That's why it ended up 130 kilometers away in some cases. This part of the trail contained mostly pieces of the rear fuselage and tailplane and three of the engines. The southern debris trail was also well-defined except nearest to Lockerbie where both trails overlapped. This trail included the forward fuselage. All recovered wreckage was taken by the Royal Air Force to the Army Central Ammunition Depot at at Longtown, about 20 miles from Lockerbie. About 90% of the hole was recovered, identified, and laid out on the floor in a two-dimensional
0: reconstruction. The worst puzzle ever.
1: Yes, definitely. No,
0: thank you. It's yeah, one of it those where it's like this was found here, and it also because we had tried to figure this out, it goes at the front. Then you got to do that with about a thousand different pieces of wreckage. Yeah, I don't was... even like normal puzzles. This looks yeah. like yeah. F-
1: this would be the pretty, worst
0: 3D puzzle ever. Pretty True. awful,
1: and they did it with the TWA 802.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. And a few take other a hard airplanes pass on that. Yeah,
1: they did it with a few other airplanes too. But yeah, they reconstructed this one in, t- in a two dimension on the floor. The reconstruction showed that there was damage consistent with a bomb on the lower left side of the fuselage in the cargo compartment. And now, back to you. (laughs)
2: Back to your normally scheduled programming. The presence of a bomb was confirmed when labs confirmed the presence of explosive residue. To confirm where exactly the improvised explosive device, or IED, was, investigators had to work backwards. Once they established the datum line, investigators took note of where each piece of wreckage was in terms of distance from the datum line, and those pieces that were closest to the datum line were closest to the detonation location.
0: That sounds like a horrible dance. Yes, yes it does. detonation location. Ooh, another graph
2: within the 250-meter band of the datum line was fragments of the lower Ford fuselage skin with explosive damage on them, as well as portions of the upper Ford fuselage, which somehow must have been separated during the explosion, which is weird. Within the 300-meter band was structure from the right side in the region that the explosive device had been shed, and this wreckage gave clear indications that the forward structure detached to the right and peeled away from the rest of the plane. Oh. Mm-hmm. There was nothing within the 600 meters of the datum line that would have allowed the forward structure to remain attached. This narrowed it down to the front part of the plane on the lower side, somewhere in the cargo hold, as the location of the bomb. Investigators began not only reconstructing the plane in 2D, but also 3D. Again, worst 3D puzzle ever. Yes. But
3: hashtag science, am I right?
2: Yes. They adhered the pieces to a skeleton within the warehouse, and this reconstruction began to show the full picture, as would any other kind of puzzle. There were wrinkles in the structure indicative of outward pressure, and the skin of the fuselage blew outward, showing exactly where the baggage containing the IED was located. The IED was within a metal baggage container in its aft outboard quarter, which was then loaded in position 14L of the forward hold, placing the bomb about two feet from the wall of the fuselage. Not great. Pieces of a Samsonite suitcase were found as well as parts of a Toshiba radio cassette player that was used to conceal the Semtex bomb, which is a plastic explosive containing RDX, Royal Demolition Explosive, as we've discussed previously, and PETN, aka er Pentaerythritol Tetranitrate. (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. Penta
2: tetranitrate. When the bomb detonated, it destroyed the structural integrity of the Ford fuselage. I'm going to explain this in baby steps, but this all happened within seconds. The initial shockwave created a hole of 20 by 20 inches in the lower left fuselage, which was surrounded by gas bubble pressure blisters in the skin of the fuselage. But that's where the shockwave went out of the plane. What about the other direction? Bomb shockwave go out in all directions. Yes. The rest of the shockwaves reverberated around the cabin through fuselage ducts, which weakened structural parts of the fuselage clear on the other side of the cross-section of the fuselage, hence why parts of the right side were found within 250 meters of the datum line. Not only did the bomb create one concise hole on the left side of the fuselage, but cracks propagated from that hole very quickly, and the fuselage skin began tearing away from the now-explosive decompression and pressure differential. The first deck cabin floor beams then gave way, so the whole lower hull separated forward to the wing, as did the upper deck ceiling. Reminder, a seven four seven has two decks. Yes. So the roof of the upper deck is gone and the floor of the bottom deck is gone. Thank you, Pressures. Thank mm-hmm. you. The front of the plane was now being held on solely by the structural belt along the windows of the lower deck, and the plane entered a nose-down and left-roll attitude, probably from the bomb disrupting the control cables that run between the cargo hold and the cabin floor. Yikes. So, now we're diving. The left window belt then failed, creating a bending and torsion moment in addition to that already created by the left-roll maneuver. As such, the forward fuselage deflected to the right crushing the right window belt before the entire Ford fuselage peeled away from the rest of the plane, striking the number three engine on the right wing. All of this happened in three seconds. I'm
3: going to be honest, Ugh. though. What's a window belt?
1: Literally the strip of passenger windows. There's... They're all one piece of structure.
2: Okay, cool. Yeah, so yeah. think so like,
3: of... It's a... This, it's a Band. It, it's a this-way belt, not a this-way belt.
2: Yeah. Right, yes. It's right. a horizontal belt, not horizontal vertical belt. Yes. not vertical, yet. I couldn't yep. think
3: of either of those words. Yep. It's okay.
1: It's a literally like the strip of windows is all one piece of across metal. the fuselage. And
3: that's all that was holding the front on gotcha. until it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, when I started listening to this podcast, I didn't even know what a fuselage was. That's okay. So window belt was a little beyond me. I <laughs> yes, <laughs>
2: that's, that's okay. okay. But that's why you're here. Yes. So thank you.
1: Thank you for asking the question.
2: I'm here. Just to reiterate, this all happened in three seconds.
1: Yeah, all of everything she just described... All the way up until the point that the forward fuselage broke off, struck the the engine three seconds from the time of the explosion to that.
2: Yep. The forward fuselage then struck the tail, which is how parts of that ended up on the southern trail. Then, as the tail disintegrated, the descent became completely vertical, about 19,000 feet over the final impact point. During the dive, the fin torque box disintegrated,
0: creating a yaw so that the remaining engines all separated as well. Please tell me that there was so much G-Force that people were unconscious when they hit the ground. They I
1: probably, probably were. There's a pretty good chance.
0: I mean, because they're going pretty fast at that point. That's but that's that
1: the w- only thing you can honestly hope. That
0: would be my hope, that you don't see yourself plummeting to your death. But Also, skipping ahead to later, there were indents in
2: the ground from individual bodies. Ugh. So No thanks. Given yeah. the speed it takes to do that, I'm really hoping they were unconscious. Like
1: I said, this one was actually a really kind of hard one to put together. There was yeah, a lot, because this one was so well covered in the media and such, which we'll talk about later. It there's a lot of detail in this investigation Ugh. and in what happened.
2: It's, it's a lot. Investigators spend a long bit of the report going through the specific fracture mechanics and how the effects of explosions could be mitigated in the future, but in the interest of brevity, we are going to move on to the findings and recommendations before continuing to the aftermath.
0: But before then, enjoy this short commercial break, and then we'll come back.
1: If you have them, if not, It's a
0: breakity break. Yeah, a breakity break! A breakity break! Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. Alda,
3: must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey?
2: (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
0: And we're back. Hello. Welcome back. Uh, It's my part now for findings. Cause. Not probable cause. Cause. Cause and recommendations we're skipping like a lot of findings because they're not there's it's like the plane was in good working condition and the pilots were properly licensed right and there was no actual malfunction with the aircraft and all this other stuff so the one i'm going to start out with is one minor fatigue crack approximately three inches long was found in the fuselage skin but this had no exploited during the Disintegration. So the That's the one didn't talk
3: about tiny
0: it. crack they found had nothing to do with it.
3: I'm impressed they found
2: it.
1: Yeah. Well, fun too. F-
2: fun fact: They're, they they had so part of their entire fracture mechanics section was talking about the cold bond process, which I was like, that phrase is oddly familiar. It uh, calls back, harkens back to Aloha Flight 243. I'm like, I don't have time for this. That's a lot. Yeah.
3: And I'm out.
2: Yeah. Basically, it wasn't in great shape, but. Nothing would have caused a catastrophe like a bomb? Yes.
3: Crazy how that works. Fun yeah. fact,
0: a bomb is worse than fatigue. Wow.
1: Shock. Generally, yes.
0: An improvised explosive device. Or IED. Or IED. Detonated in luggage container serial number Alpha Victor Echo 4041 Papa Alpha, which had been loaded at position 14 left in the forward hold. This placed the device approximately 25 inches inboard from the skin on the lower left side of the fuselage at station 700. So, that basically, there was a bomb on board. Yep. And it was two feet from the wall. Yes. And they used a lot of words to make sure you knew it. Yep. Yes. Also, welcome to any report you've ever read in your life. Does it yes. bother
2: anyone else that the UK's, like, screw unit anything... I'm gonna use inches. i'm gonna use inches here and meters over here yeah
0: I'm like, oh, the, just to confuse you they're the pretty... only ones that use both consistently yeah,
1: that's pretty typical of the uk they'll do that like they also use like miles per hour
0: well in one <laughs> of the
2: pictures in this picture it says that the hole is 20 by 20 i'm like 20 what
3: yes it does that is a thank a you fact what I had to go it?
2: to the Wikipedia page. with was like, 20 inches. Like, Thank ah, yes, you. Yes. It could have been 20 feet or 20 meters for all I know. That I mean,
0: 20 millimeters. Yeah. I mean, inches probably makes the most sense. Yeah. It could have been millimeters or centimeters. Centimeters would make sense too. Millimeters probably not. It's really small.
2: It was also a bomb. It could have been 20 feet for all we know. That's true. So I was like. <gasps> but it doesn't
0: matter. It exploded.
3: <laughs> <laughs> like. Just like your math teacher always said, make sure you label your units.
0: Dun-dun-dun. I hated that. Pew-pew to the (laughs) AAIV. Okay. Way to to, to bring up a suppressed memory. Sorry. I'm sorry. The analysis of the flight recorders using currently accepted techniques did not reveal positive evidence of the explosive event. No, because they stopped working. The positive, the the thing that they found out was they stopped working.
2: Part of why they mentioned that is they possibly want to implement sensors that would tell if it was an explosion or an explosive decompression because they send out different pulse waves. So a bomb sends out positive pulse waves and an explosive decompression sends out negative pulse waves.
1: It's kind of a sad thing that they have to talk about putting a sensor like that on an airplane.
3: Science (sighs) is cool, though. It is. It is
1: cool.
2: So I don't know if that's one of the recommendations. I guess we'll get there, won't we? But that's why they specifically said the FDR didn't sense anything. Well... No, it wasn't...
0: It stopped working. Right. It's not designed for this. No. No. Especially in 1988. All right. The direct explosive forces produced a large hole in the fuselage structure and disrupted the main cabin floor. Major cracks continued to propagate from the large hole under the influence of the service pressure differential. The indirect explosive effects produce significant structural damage in areas remote from the site of the explosion. That's usually how explosions work. Usually. Usually. The combined effect of the direct and indirect explosive forces was to destroy the structural integrity of the forward fuselage, which it did. It accomplished its goal. Containers and items of cargo ejected from the fuselage aperture in the forward hold together with pieces of detached structure collided with the empennage serving most of the left tailplane, disrupting the outer half of the right tailplane and damaging the fin leading edge structure. So it damaged the tail.
1: Yes, that's what they're trying to say.
0: The forward fuselage and flight deck were separated from the remaining structure within a period of two to three seconds. Again, plane went boom. Very quickly. Mm-hmm. Very. The number three engine detached when it was hit by the separating forward fuselage. As it would when a giant piece of plane hits something hanging in the air, I would expect it would fall off.
3: I would have guessed the engine hit the fuselage, not the other way around.
1: Yes. Before but knowing what happened. Kind of what made this crazy is that the fuselage separated and struck the engine, Which not the other wild. way around. Yes.
3: It just seems like the engines would be so much easier to move than the fuselage. That's
0: all, you know. I mean, you're not wrong. Yeah. To be fair. But still, if you're making a an in, in, an educated guess, then yes, I would say uh, yes, you are correct. Most of the remaining aircraft disintegrated while it was descending nearly vertically from 19,000 to 9,000 feet. The wing impacted the town of Lockerbie producing a large crater and creating a fireball. That's it for the findings. Oof. Great. Moving on. The cause. The in-flight disintegration of the aircraft was caused by the detonation of an improvised explosive device, or IED, located in a baggage container positioned on the left side of the forward cargo hold at the aircraft station 700. Safety recommendations. Again, there are five. And it says, The following safety recommendations were made during the course of the investigation. The manufacturers of existing recorders which use buffering techniques, have consideration to making the buffers non-volatile and the data recoverable after power loss.
2: I remember skimming over that.
3: (laughs) I was like, those were words.
1: These, okay, when it comes to things, when we talk about the flight data recorders and the CBRs anyways... That's all very much changed by now. I think what it they're changed pretty quickly. I think even. what they're
2: implying is having some sort of battery supply so that after power loss. This is not occurs. the first time that this is coming oh, up in a yeah. report. I think that's it what it's cut. implying. Yeah. But, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. And
0: it I've, seems pretty yes. It seems in case like a a bus gets cut, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then having something so that it can record a little bit more data before Mm -hmm. it goes completely dead yeah this
1: is by far and away not the first time this has come up in one of our reports actually and that's something that has changed but then again it's still not entirely useful for them to have their own power supply all the time
0: (laughs) prepare to talk about this like two more times okay (laughs) because the next one says that airworthiness authorities reconsider the concept of allowing buffered data to be stored in a volatile memory
3: Hey, so I think that means they need a battery so that they can last longer after the power gets cut. They're
1: mostly, I mean, it's all solid state now anyways, and that usually requires its own power supply, so they probably do these days.
0: That airworthiness authorities consider requiring the CVR system to contain a short duration, <laughs> i.e. no greater than one minute backup power supply, to enable the CVR to respond to events that result in the most immediate loss of aircraft's electrical power supply. So the other one's like
2: implied a battery. This one's like, no, it needs Seriously, a battery. it needs a battery. <laughs>
0: you
3: guys can't see how done Christy looked with that. <laughs> she looked like 110% done.
0: And then this is the one we were talking about. So that the Department of Transport fund a study to devise methods of recording violent positive and negative pressure pulses preferably utilizing the aircraft's flight recorder systems
2: yeah that so So be able to tell was it an explosion or an an explosive decompression right was
0: it out or in basically those are two very different pulses that airworthiness authorities and aircraft manufacturers undertake a systematic study with a view to identifying measures that might mitigate the effects of explosive devices and improve the tolerance of aircraft structure and systems to explosive damage. As we have discussed before, planes are not explosive proof. No. Nor and should they be. It's
1: very hard to make them that way. Unless it's... they're made
0: of, like, rubber, and then they can't fly.
1: So. Yeah, it's not practical with any... anything...
0: Uh, Planes aren't
2: missile-proof, they're not bomb-proof.
1: They're not supposed to be, because this isn't supposed to be a problem. But some people like to make it the problem.
2: Speaking of people who like to make it a problem, let me go into everything else. The rest of my notes come from the Wikipedia page for this flight. As you do, as every teacher has told me not to do. As
0: the best of sources. (laughs) Yes, the best. As
2: every podcaster does. My notes also come from the documentary Since the Bombing of Pan Am Flight 103, which we rented on Amazon Prime. Yes. For five dollars. I'm Woo! glad you did the price drop. Yes. I'm sorry, it was four ninety nine. Ooh, big spender. Oh, <laughs> big, big spender. <laughs> big spender. The documentary was based largely around the American families. That was most of the passengers on board. So that's mostly what I'm talking about, though I do acknowledge this wasn't everyone. The families of the victims did not find out about the deaths from the airline or the US State Department. They found out from the news.
0: As oh no. I feel like happens when almost any one of these problems occur.
1: It's unfortunate, but I mean, literally, like, they scrolled the names of the Syracuse University people across the screen, and that's how one of the families found out.
0: That's so stressful. That
1: their daughter was on the plane.
0: But we've talked about this before. Like, there are families that, like, especially with, I know we talked about it with Uber Lingen mm-hmm. and with the Queens crash, Yeah, but, like, the November after 9-11, there were people waiting at the airport that the plane just never showed up, and yep. they were like, what the heck's going on? No one said anything. hmm yep. So I, I feel like the airlines should get their act together and be oh. like, there's
2: been an it's incident.
1: changed a lot I now. will talk about
2: the changes at the very, very, very end, and I forgot to write notes on them, so okay, great. it's very bullet-pointed. That's fine. On December 28th, happy birthday, Kalen. Woo, before you're born. Yeah <laughs> <laughs> that. A week after the bombing, it was announced that it was indeed a bomb. It was also revealed that on December 5th, 16 days before the accident, the FAA had issued a security bulletin after a man called the U.S. Embassy in Helsinki, Finland, and said a Pan Am flight from Frankfurt to the U.S. would be blown up within the next two weeks by someone with the Abu Nidal Organization, which was a Palestinian nationalist militant group at the time, and that a Finnish woman would unwittingly be carrying the bomb. The warning was sent to many embassies and all US carriers. As such, Pan Am began charging passengers a security surcharge of five or ten dollars, depending on who you ask, to facilitate a screening program. Which clearly
3: didn't work. Well That's... that would have been sixteen days after, which is after two weeks.
2: Yes, but also, I'll get more into this later, the FAA mandated that all U.S. carriers implement a baggage matching system, so a bag that didn't match a passenger would not go on the plane unless it was physically screened, like you opened it and went through it. Okay. That Pan Am did not implement. (sighs) Okay, you think you're mad now? I literally wrote this in. You want to know something that will make you mad? (laughs) Go (laughs) ahead. (laughs) The security team in Frankfurt found the warning under a pile of papers on a desk the day after the bombing. What?
0: It's just, oh, by the way, your airport, there's going to be a bomb, okay? And it's going to blow
1: Specifically, up. Specifically, it's like, no, Here, there's a bomb here's on a your specific plane. Here's
0: a plan. And here's plan how it's going to happen. On how it's going to, don't worry, it's uh, no big deal.
1: Yeah, it, it's Excuse pretty me? messed up. It's pretty messed it up. It doesn't
2: get better. One of the Frankfurt security screeners, whose job it was to spot explosives in an x-ray machine, learned what Semtex was during her ABC interview 11 months later. What?
0: She's trained to do this and she didn't know what it looked like. Well,
3: she was 80s trained. Yeah.
0: I didn't think I would make Miranda men. I don't know this part.
3: Apparently. Apparently. Miranda gets mad at history, this is history. (laughs) This is
1: history, Miranda's mad.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I get mad at history. This
1: is history, and Miranda's mad.
3: This
2: is what you guys came for. Yep. On January 4th, 1989, many of the bodies were still unidentified, and the State Department had relegated family liaison responsibilities to Pan Am, who was wildly unqualified to do such a thing. Specifically, their part-time workers were in charge. They were also not at all an independent party to the investigation as victim contacts should be, and they began asking really personal questions that would affect future compensation amounts. Yes, they uh, did. Are, what? Are the victim's parents getting a divorce? Did the victim use drugs? Were they homosexual?
1: Because this would mean they should get less money. All of these things mean what? they should get less money.
3: I hate the Or you should have
0: done your f- job. How about that? And maybe You hire want compensation people? problems? How about you just do the thing you were supposed to do to begin with? Huh, Pan Am? <laughs> and have a third party do all the stuff? That that happens.
2: Pan Am, no. First of all, Pan Am's gone. But also, airlines <laughs> are not in charge of this crap.
3: That's good.
2: Normally. Yeah. I will get into and that later. Yes, all of this Agreed. has since
1: very much changed.
2: Okay, you ready for more? 19 families were told to pick up their loved ones' bodies on January 5th from JFK. Where specifically? the livestock section of the airport where the coffins were offloaded in from stacks in a filthy truck. Uh, yeah. So there was no one there from Pan Am or the state department. You're joking. Nope. nope. Their coffins were literally stacked in a disgusting truck.
1: They offloaded them with a forklift and placed them. They were in stacks in the truck. They, they placed were them in,
2: human beings. They
1: placed them in front of the,
2: in the livestock section of the airport that's horrendous.
1: How disrespectful. And not that you want uh, uh, I guess not that you would expect that like the body you were receiving is whole, and you probably don't want to see it, but one of the family members was like, "And the coffin was like half the size of my son.:
0: Oh no. Which is
1: just something you don't which want means to show. They up. Just
0: piled oh,
2: oh, no. Come on. Families later learned that at least in Scotland, they were loaded onto the plane with fanfare and dignity as they deserved. Mm -hmm. So thank you to the Scottish people. That's just sad. At the time of the accident, Reagan was president and neither he nor his administration did anything. They didn't even make an announcement? Nope. On January 20th of 1989, George H.W. Bush was inaugurated. And the families were outraged when he didn't do or say anything about the accident or terrorism in his inauguration speech. So they began contacting Congress, who said, we can't really do anything about this. Please contact the media. And boy, did they go to town with that. 103 days after the accident, Pan Am Flight 103, many families decided to march on Washington and demand an audience with President Bush, which they did get despite everyone saying they wouldn't. On August 4th, the President's Commission on Aviation Security and Terrorism was established, led by former Labor Secretary Anne McLaughlin, to prevent future tragedy. With the help of the work of this commission, a U.S. federal court found Pan Am guilty of willful misconduct due to lax security screenings by not implementing baggage reconciliation, matching baggage to the
0: passengers before loading, that had been mandated by the FAA prior to the incident. Good. You know, understanding what happens after this... With like nine eleven. And we talked about before things leading up to nine eleven. Having not one but two presidents say nothing. Yep. Is not a good way to show that you're with the American people that you're supposed to be representing to the entire world.
2: Mm-hmm. Granted, President Bush did implement this whole commission, but didn't
0: really do anything after that. they had to get an audience with him. I know. Now.
1: I'll, I'll say like basically Reagan, Bush, then Clinton, then second Bush. <laughs> um, <laughs> second Bush. Not one of them up to the point of nine eleven between Lockerbie and nine eleven did anything really. That was what they were talking okay, about. Okay,
2: they didn't do anything in terms of aviation security.
1: No. They didn't. And they didn't heed the warnings.
2: No, I'm not in that. Well, I'm not None in 2001 them. yet. So yes, pause.
0: Okay, we'll pause and then we'll pick back up later. Go ahead.
2: On November 15th, 1991, still boosting up a little bit in years, U.S. and British officials announced that two Libyan officials were being indicted for murder. They were Abdelbaset al Magrani, who was a Libyan intelligence officer and head of security for Libyan Arab Airlines, and Laman Khalifa, FEMA, the Libyan Arab Airlines station manager in Luka Airport in Malta. At the time, Libya had a very bad relationship with the United States. In 1986, Libya bombed the LaBelle nightclub in West Germany, or I think it was West Berlin, Germany, specifically, killing American servicemen. So Reagan ordered an attack on Libya, where many died, including the brother, leader, and guide of the revolution of Libya, Colonel Muammar
0: Gaddafi. Not killing him, his daughter. So we're not on great terms right now. The all. whole fighting fire with fire thing seems to be our huge problem. Yeah. We talked about it. We even it's... talked about it when we talked about what happened in uh, 2016.
1: It's not just us, it's everywhere. It's everywhere.
0: I hate it. Anyway, we won't get into
2: that. So, Al Magrahi and FEMA were both members of the JSO, which was the Libyan intelligence service, kind of like our CIA. Right. Not great. Gaddafi said he would hand over the suspects if the trial was held in a neutral country. And that was very much contentious for the victims' families, which it's believed Gaddafi kind of anticipated. He's like, you're never going to hold it in a neutral country, so we're never going to release them. Many believed that the trial should be held in Scotland or the U.S. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. One family, however, published an article saying that they should call Gaddafi's bluff and agree to a trial in a neutral country. This sentiment reached the U.S. State Department, who agreed to a trial in a neutral country. The two suspects were surrendered on April 5th, 1999, to U.N. officials for a trial in the Netherlands. There was a former U.S. base there that was made to be Scottish soil for the purposes of the trial, which was conducted under Scottish law beginning on May 3rd, 2000.
1: Craziest thing. Literally, they took part of the Netherlands and made it Scottish soil for this trial.
3: And that's crazy. We're like 12 years later right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: That's... The other big thing.
3: On
2: January 31st, 2001, McGraw, he was found guilty of 270 counts of murder by a panel of three Scottish judges and sentenced to life in prison, which, by Scottish law, meant he would be eligible for parole in 20-some years. FEMA, on the other hand, was acquitted.
3: 20-some years would be, like, now.
2: Oh, hold on. Okay. It gets, it. yeah. So, FEMA, the other suspect, was acquitted and sent back to Libya, where he was greeted personally by
1: Gaddafi.
0: Bro
2: and then I don't have it written in my notes but then 911 happened. Yeah. And pretty much all the families were like I told you so.
1: That's the whole thing I was trying to get at. Is the families were like this should be your warning sign that something else could happen. And they were like if something else happens, we have you a... already had an enormous yeah. accident that could have fixed that. And then 911 happened and they were like I don't want to say I told you so, but I told you so.
2: Going going back to the dude who who was uh acquitted a 20 year guy. Yeah. this oh, 20 year the, guy. Yeah, Got it. The, that one. On January 23rd, 2003, he tried to appeal. That didn't work. Obviously. He's like, no, I really didn't do it. And they're like, you have no grounds for an appeal. Zero. You've presented us with zero evidence. Right. So no. On August 16th, 2003, eight months ish later, Libya admitted responsibility for the bombing in a letter to the UN Security Council, since it was their people who did it. Libya offered to pay $2.7 billion to the families, $10 million per family, provided that the sanctions placed on them be lifted. Here's the politics. This was hard to orchestrate, as this was the first time that any state sponsor of terrorism had offered compensation to terror victims. The first time ever. So that's pretty insane. Yep. On September 12th, the UN voted to lift sanctions. Here's the political part. Opening up the oil-rich country to business.
3: Ugh.
1: Yep. They made it about business. I mean, of
3: course they did, but like... uh, It's
1: an economic thing. It's just
2: frustrating. So, getting compensation for such a thing had been seen as controversial. I mean... Money's never going to replace your kid. But I like the way that this family put it. Money is never going to replace a p- child, but it's punitive damages against Libya. They're not going to prison. They need to be punished somehow. They have to pay everybody
0: money, yep. it's not that it's not about it, the families getting money. It's about financially those... hurting the country that was responsible. But the unfortunate
1: yep. thing is that that country knew that that wouldn't be a financial hardship because, because oil it would yeah. lift for business, and that's they probably terrible. made money. Yeah, they probably made a lot of money off of that, which is an awful thing. That's negotiating with
3: terrorists. That's so frustrating.
2: Going back to the dude who was prosecuted and sentenced and did not appeal or did not successfully appeal. On August 20th, 2009, McGraw, he was released from prison on compassionate grounds as being terminally ill with prostate cancer after serving in prison for almost... Ten years. He was given a three-month prognosis, which Scotland found as grounds for the compassionate release. He went home to Libya, where he lived until his death three years later. So he didn't have three months to live. Nope. Medication advanced, and he was able to live for three years. That's... He did outlive Gaddafi, though, who died in 2011. He died in 2012.
1: We won't get too deep into the politics of that, either.
2: In October 2015... Scottish prosecutors said they wanted to interview two Libyan nationals who had been identified as new suspects. And most recently, on December 21st, 2020, 32 years after literally out, last year, 32 yeah. years to the day after the accident and 1 year ago today, the US Attorney General William Barr announced that Abu Agela Massoud Ker Al Marimi, a Libyan national in custody in Libya, had been charged with crimes in connection to the bombing and stands accused of being involved in the bomb's construction. I didn't think I would have this recent of news, but I do.
1: Isn't that crazy?
2: The wreckage remains in a secure location in Dumfries, Scotland, as evidence in the ongoing criminal investigation. That's the
1: craziest part. It's still The airplane still, open. still exists.
2: That's
3: super crazy.
2: I'm not done. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> like, this, oh, is, no. this is all, like, heartfelt stuff now. Okay. It's very wholesome. Okay. In the years following the accidents, some families, not all, went to go visit Lockerbie both to see the site as well as to thank the people. The people of Lockerbie were incredibly kind to the victims' families and went so far as to wash and iron the clothes found amidst the wreckage and return them despite being ripped and burned, and this included the captain's hat.
0: Aww.
3: They
1: did every single piece of clothing that found, whether it be burned, holes, whatever. They Considering the fact it, that folded like, it.
3: they were like absolutely demolished, that's such a
0: nice gesture. It reminds yeah. me of the town, the Fairfax, was it Fairfax? In Canada after 9-11. Halifax. Mm-hmm. Halifax. That's, that's Halifax, what I was thinking yeah. too. Yeah, where all the Canadians brought in all the people who were stuck because they couldn't fly mm-hmm. into U.S. Mm-hmm. airspace. To this day, one
2: person living in the Rosebank Crescent where the fuselage came down still finds pieces of fuselage in his backyard. Oh. He recalls hearing the fuselage come down and was very lucky to have not been one of the home's hit. There are many a memorial, and one of them in Scotland has memorial stones for those whose bodies were never recovered. I think there's at least eight of them. One family specifically went to go see the indent in the ground where their son's body landed, since he sat right where the fuselage separated, and they have since built a traditional Scottish cairn where each visitor adds a stone whenever they go to visit the site. Aww. One of the victims, actually I think it was her, the one who went to go see her son's indent, which is really morbid she's an artist specifically a pottery artist and she went to each of the victims families and asked to sculpt their reaction when they heard the news
1: as many as she could anyways i don't think she got with all the family so she has
2: an entire memorial of just sculptures and one of the things that she pointed out in the documentary was that most of the women clutched their torso because that's from where they felt the pain of giving birth Mm -hmm. and this was like unbirthing oh
3: that's really sad. It is really that's sad. That's
1: a
2: horrible way to put that, but yeah, yeah. So most of them are just like clutching their wombs. Mm. I'm
3: like, oh Jesus, that's really sad. Yeah, it's really sad. But it was a
1: really interesting art piece because they're they're full sized. They're full sized. Full sized human bodies, basically, and they're supposed to be representations of the moment that the family's heard. The family's heard, and she said, "What's amazing about this." Is that I was able to do this with such detail because the families remembered the exact moment they found out their family member passed away. And they will never forget it.
2: And they were also willing to talk to her about it because she was one of them. Right. Yeah.
1: She was one of them. So she's represented in it too.
2: So one of the ongoing memorials happens every year at Syracuse University. They host a Remembrance Week. This year it was between October 17th and 23rd. They spend the entire week doing everything around campus. They display 35 empty seats on the quad. They have multimedia presentations. They do clothing drives. They place blue and white flags, one for each victim, on display. They have candlelight vigils. They have the lady who made the memorial sculptures do a presentation. There's an ASL interpretation of events as well. So the lady who made the sculptures, she... Made a documentary called Seat 20D, which is where her son was sitting. There's a celebration of life. They have an archives pop up exhibit of a bunch of wreckage and stuff. They have a rose laying ceremony. They have a scholarship in place, so they announce the scholars, and then the previous scholars will all sit in those 35 seats.
0: Oh, so that's a lot. That is a
2: lot.
1: Yeah. Wow, that is a lot.
2: Now for changes. So this was obviously handled very poorly by the State Department. So the FBI now has an office for victim assistance, which is now involved immediately after such catastrophes. They contact the families and will meet the bodies at the airport.
1: More importantly, after terrorist events.
2: Good. This was implemented, as far as I could tell from the documentary, under the direction of the FBI director from 01 to 13, which was Robert Mueller. You might know that name. Yep. They also assist in prepping families for things like the trial because that's really hard as, oh, she, heck yeah.
1: as she put it when the trial was going on she was like when you have these people in front of you it's very different than a grainy picture of the manhunt yeah that they were going on Yeah, well, in and newspaper. in a lot of
3: ways
2: that's reliving trauma Right. Yeah, so now there's literally an entire office of the FBI dedicated to this, which is great. We and really awful. should have done that sooner.
1: I mean, it's an awful thing to have to exist, but it is a good thing that I'm, it does. I'm
0: surprised that no one said anything until after 2001. Well, I feel like then it was just drilled more into everyone's heads. Well, it, as, everyone well, went through it again. It's a yeah, lot more so
1: impactful when it happens on your on, soil. On
0: soil. I realize that, right? But when you think about how poorly they did everything everything after this happened how poorly pan M and how poorly the state department did everything yeah that someone somewhere was thinking you know
2: we should change
0: that we should really not have this be this messy well, well and
2: i know that was something else for like murder victims for a while, there there were times that murder victims, the families would find out from the news. That's changed. Now they don't release the identity of victims until the family's been notified. Yep. There was a. There's well, many and another, episodes about that on crime podcasts.
1: I mean, another thing is, I mean, it, you, there used to be back when accidents would happen earlier in the airlines. I mean, they were a lot more honorable about the whole thing. Pan Am, in this case, did a, an awful job. Nothing short of a lot of blame on their side and on how they handled the situation. And they understood that, I think. But it it ultimately was one of a few factors that led to their demise. they, yeah, they were like, They went away a short time later.
3: As someone who works in mental health, all of that was so stressful, just like from the mental health perspective. Yes. They ceased operations
2: three years after the bombing.
1: Correct. So, and that's, I mean, this was a major airline. This was a huge airline. They were also under financial stress. There was a lot of other things that contributed to it, but this did not do well for them. They had some really bad PR from this and this.
2: Well, and then that civil lawsuit, the one where they were found guilty of willful negligence, was after they ceased operations. so that didn't mean so much anymore.
1: Unfortunately.
2: Yeah, wow. That was a lot. It is a lot. I'm sorry, we don't usually get that far into passenger, victim... Stories because it's a lot and it's hard. But this, we watched an entire documentary. I couldn't separate myself from it. I couldn't not talk about it. Well,
0: and you kind of with something like this, where it's so intentional, you have to talk about it. You have to. It's part. It's part of what happened. Especially when that information is so readily available. Yes. Right. So that was Pan Am Flight 103 or Lockerbie. Thank you so much for listening. I realized this was a hard episode. It was a hard for me, and I only did part of it.
1: Yes. Oof. Thanks for uh, guesting,
3: Kaylin. That's what I do. Thanks. We hope Even to have you back. when you called me two hours beforehand.
0: Much, yeah, yeah. Much
2: appreciated. We needed <laughs> yeah. somebody, and you came, so. I think I called Kaylin well, at 4.30.
3: I'm like, hey, we, I need you at 7. Well, <laughs> that we, is exactly what happened.
1: We'd been talking about for a long time. Very true. That we needed to hang out and whatnot.
3: I mean, we've been talking about it for at least 10 months. Yes.
1: So, so yeah. It finally happened.
3: Woohoo! Yep.
1: So yeah, no, it's it's good, and we thank you for guesting, and being part of this.
3: No problem. I had a fun time. Good, this was... good. And thanks. I mean, as fun as you can when you're talking about people. Yeah, yeah.
1: That that is always the truth. This one we definitely went heavier into the
3: everything, the perish, yeah.
1: the those that perished side than we normally do.
3: But I did get to meet Milo. So.
1: Yes, you did get me to the. Do- you does get that
2: make does dog. that make
0: it worth it? No. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well thanks so much for listening thanks to all our patrons including kaylin yeah. you guys are awesome thanks. thanks to everyone who listens you guys are awesome too we now have generally more than 400 people that listen per week so thank you to all of you 400 that is people such a big number <laughs> um, it's growing for us it, it is it makes me really happy yeah so thank you so much also we do appreciate when you guys give us like when you send us messages on Facebook or email us or whatever. Sometimes we
2: suck at replying because there's three of us and not everyone gets the notification. I'm still saying AKA you could check. Christy. I was about to say that seemed really pointed.
0: We still- we yeah.
2: Miranda reads the emails first and then the notification disappears from my phone and she's like, Did you see that email? I'm
0: like, No <laughs> You should check. I'm sorry. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you guys have a safe and healthy week. We'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen.
1: If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions.
0: This episode was researched and written by all three of us. Our theme song was
2: written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo.
1: And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman.
2: Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.